So I'll call the second case now, Ramler Trucking versus Fish. Ms. Benson, you've reserved uh, eight minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you're ready. May it please the court, good morning, um, members of the gallery council. My name is Terry Benson, and I represent Ramler Trunking in this appeal before you. Uh, as the court is aware, this case arises out of a, a personal injury that occurred at work uh, and a subsequent civil lawsuit that was engaged against my client in the uh, civil court in Stearns County. Uh, the case involves two separate systems of liability that exist in tandem, a parallel universes, if you can imagine. On the one side, the workers' compensation system in which Mr. Fish was injured. In that system, it is a no-fault system, regardless of how he got injured or whose fault it was, except in very limited circumstances, he is entitled to all the benefits, wage loss, um, medical benefits. It is a system that is called the Grand Compromise, where he is assured of benefits uh, uh, in exchange for a limited liability. He can't pursue uh, civil tort damages. The other universe is where my client existed, Ramler Trucking. That's where Ramler was a private company. It got sued by Mr. Fish in civil court. And in that universe, Ramler Trucking is only going to pay damages if, number one, if it is found at fault or liable, and number two, if you accept, again, in very limited circumstances, in that universe under 60402, subdivision one, as amended in 2003, we're only going to pay damages in proportion to that that were attributed to us by a jury. Council, the point that I'm struggling with here, um, and it kind of cuts both ways, I'm going to ask opposing counsel about this too. Um, we have two different statutory amendments um, that we have to figure out what to do with. And I'm looking at the 2000 amendment, uh, MinStat section 176.061, which very much looks like, as it is characterized by opposing counsel, as a codification of the Lambertson contribution provision. Um, now, you, of course, rely on the 2003 comparative fault statute change. That makes no reference to the earlier, more specific uh, 2000 uh, statutory amendment. And it seems to me that's a problem. And I'm just wondering, how do we go about reconciling these two provisions? Well, that's exactly the heart of the problem, right? These two systems... I blind squirrels find nuts once in a while, yes. I, <laughs> right? Uh, they, they, they intersect. They, they go along in tandem, and then the parallel universes, they, they collide, and you have to decide what happens in here. Well, we know that some parts of the work comp law continues on in the civil case, right? The work comp uh, carrier, the employer, is shielded by virtue of 176061. The question is, does it not also 
doesn't part of the civil law leak into the case right here in the nexus where we talk about comparative fault. I will tell you that comparative fault does apply all the time in work comp. They apply it even though if you go through the workers' compensation statute, not one of those subdivisions discuss comparative fault. Not one. So it's item 176061 subdivision 11. Nowhere does it say that Mr. Fish when he is found 5% at fault, should have that taken away from him. The courts have developed that and have looked to the civil law. I think Camburn is probably our best uh, image of that. In Camburn, the court actually said, I'm going to look at how, you, you remember the Camburn case where uh, a plaintiff brought a lawsuit against a third-party tortfeasor and her employer. She was less liable, she was more liable than the third-party tortfeasor. And she asked the court to combine the fault of the work comp carrier and her third-party tortfeasor so that she would be more at fault, they would be more at fault, and she would be able to recover. And that court specifically referenced the statute that was in effect at the time, which was 60401, and said, no, the Comparative Fault Act doesn't want us to do it that way. The Cambrian court said, Many multi-party litigations, the situation is always present that a plaintiff may or may not recover what is less than 50, when it is less than 50% at fault. The policy involved is that generally the fairest rule for all concerned is to take the fault of all the parties contributing to the injury at 100% and then compare, specifically referencing. And there are other instances in, in many of these cases, they talk about who is percentage of fault. How, why are they applying that at all if it doesn't apply? And, and I think specifically since we had the modification of 60402 subdivision one, and I think the way that Stab has interpreted it, I think where the courts have tried to say we shouldn't look at comparative fault, they have said there is no common liability. And I think that's really an issue that I think that Stab addressed and I think it did well and also Lambertson addressed. Council, let's uh, let's walk through 60402 if we could. Certainly. Would you agree that the trigger for 60402 is two or more persons being severally liable? Yes, I do, Your Honor. All right. And your client's position is that both Ramler and the employer are severally liable? Yes, sir. Okay. So then it says, but going on, it says, contributions to award shall be in proportion to the percentage of fault attributable to each. Would that then suggest in this case, uh, the employer should make a 75% contribution to the award? No, Your Honor, because as I mentioned, the, there are parts of the work comp case, I think, that have to see the, the kind of the parallel universes tilt in. And I think that there are still applications where Lambertson might still apply, and there are situations where comparative fault applies, and it may not always apply in every situation. So, so your client's position is we should not read that next clause literally. I think they, we know they can't, right? We know that they can't, they, they have been, let me clarify this, they have been held at fault in the workers' compensation system, which is that universe that he began his lawsuit in. So they, he can't, in addition to that award, be held liable. Well, then, I, then I'm perplexed about the next clause. It says, except the following persons are jointly and severally liable for the whole award. If the employer is severally liable and the employer is a person whose fault is greater than 50%, then wouldn't the employer be jointly and severally liable for the whole award? Um, I believe that how that would work, Your Honor, would be that when the employer, if the employer was found more than 50% at fault, which by the way, in this case they were. Yes, it was, 75%. 75% at fault. I believe that that has no bearing on or changes his, uh, it's not immunity, hit this fact that he is uh, uh, cloaked in the Workers' Compensation Act, which can limit statutorily how much he has to pay. It doesn't change his acts. Fundamentally, the plaintiffs, uh, the employer in this case, committed a tort. There's well, I thought your client's position was 60402 as amended in 2003, amended everything, including the workers' compensation law. I, I think it amends how it, it, it amends how it 
plays in that intersection between the two. It doesn't change workers' compensation law. It changes how it applies. Yeah, but I'm just reading this literally. If, you're, if your position is correct that an employer is severally liable in an accident such as this one, then that, wouldn't 60402 amend the workers' comp law to say that the employer would be liable, and not just severally liable, but jointly liable for the entire award? Uh, Your Honor, here's I mean, if you read I, it literally. I, if you read it literally, you could say that, but you don't have to read one in conflict with the other. I don't believe the statutes are necessarily in conflict. They exist to address the issues that are presented in each of the systems. Your, your argument is that the grand bargain still lives. So the employer's workers' comp liability is limited by workers' comp, but as you're determining between what a third party has to pay toward that, then that's covered by 602. Yes, I think so, because we we have a separate liability. If you look, let's talk about Lambertson, because I think it's really important. When Lambertson was written, we talked about, you know, where they said you couldn't have joint liability because you didn't have common liability, right? You couldn't have several liability because you weren't, you weren't, uh, you weren't jointly commonly, you didn't have a common liability because you had workers' compensation, which is statutory, and then you had tort law. Well, there was no contribution by an, a tort, third party tortfeasor against an employer until Lambertson, because that was the prevailing view. But Lambertson told you, and, and it's amazing the language, because people talk about Lambertson all the time, but they don't think about how they, how uh, historic that decision was. They said, well, there is no common liability to the employee in tort, both the employer and the third party are nonetheless liable to the employee for his injuries. And then they talk about the different systems, and then they say, look, we have to fashion a remedy and utilize fairness unfettered by outworn technical concepts like common liability. What has to happen, because there are two systems, that we're not going to get rid of one system for the other. There is a system of workers' compensation where we are trying to give that grant bargain, where that employer provides those benefits when someone is injured at work. But we also have to take into consideration the principles of fairness and what I think that the statute, what it reads, I think we have to read them in concert with each other and not look at them as being in conflict. Counsel, um, to be jointly liable with someone else, do you have to be commonly liable? No, I don't believe so. If you look at the uh, Staub language, they talk about several liability. That's what they start out with, and they say the very first question I have is, what is, um, when does it begin? When does the Staub, uh, well, I can't find my notes here, I'm sorry, Your Honors. Uh, they say you have to be, um, you have to decide when you become severally liable. And they say that you become severally liable at the time that an act is committed that causes an injury. It doesn't say you have to be commonly liable. They say you have to be severally liable. And they determine it is at that time. And again, even if you don't believe that, look at Lambertson. They said, meh, common liability. Well, these guys both owe a duty. You owe a statutory duty. Your duty is being taken care of under statute, and you owe a duty due to tort. You have to work with those two systems and put them together. And because I believe that Lambertson says, it doesn't, I'm going to make this decision even though it doesn't exist before, because we're not going to box ourselves in by saying we have to have the magic common liability. And that is where a lot of those cases came from uh, that came after Lambertson. One of the reasons why you would assert that the Court of Appeals is wrong in focusing on common liability because Lambertson and Staub both suggest that's not the case. Yes, Your Honor. I, I think that the Lambertson language, when they made that decision and they just out and out said they owe a duty, separate duty, I'm going to make this common liability. That's what they did. And Staub says, I'm not even going to talk about you having to be commonly liable. The statute doesn't say you have to be commonly liable. The statute says you have to be severally liable. And they think that several liability attaches at the time of the tort. 
So I want to go back to my very first question to you, and that is what about the specific provisions of subdivision 11, and why don't those control here? Because uh, Mr. Wilson, I believe, goes on at some length in his brief about why they do. Well, the reason, first of all, I disagree with um, Mr. Fish's brief. I think that um, the statute parts of the provision would apply if there was a contribution issue. Lambertson is only, only about contribution for running from the third-party tortfeasor to the uh, employer. I only get contribution if I pay more than my fair share. If you apply, as Judge Grunke did, the comparative fault statute and you only make me have to pay my 20%, then I'm not paying more than a jury told me I owed. I'm not paying more than my fair share. And so you don't get to the Lambertson provisions and to 176061 subdivision 11. You don't need to go there. But I think it's interesting to note that the prefatory language in that subsection is that you know, once if an employer settles out or they walk and wave or they do anything, then an employee can bring whatever tort lawsuit he wants. It doesn't say, and then everything is run through the formula. It, it just stops there. So I think that if you read the statutes in tandem, you're trying to, we're going to have to, so you, you people are going to have to figure out how to make the work comp statute work along with the principles that are articulated in STAB in an interpretation of how we want to hold defendants liable. Do we want to make my client, Rambler Trucking, the responsible party? You know, I know you know this. My client was found 20% at fault. The fish position is that my client, I mean, after offsets, should be paying 95%, 95% of the damages. I am now underwriting a claim against an employer. And Minus the amount you can get by way of contribution from the employer's carrier, right? Well, so it's not 95% of all the damage. No, you're right. And I did say, uh, did, uh, not accounting for offsets, because those same offsets would be available to me in, in uh, civil law, 543. I think I can make the same offsets. You get to take off the work comp benefits that are paid. But absolutely, I, but I'm still having to pay 95% of what I should otherwise not be paying. I mean, I should only pay according to Stubb. We're, we're trying to hold people. It's a change in how we look at tort liability. I shouldn't be responsible. I can't think of another situation, Your Honors, where my clients would be asked to pay 95% of something when they only did 20%. It's just... And so I go back to my initial question stated a little differently, but what you're really telling us is um, the change in the comparative fault statute in 2003, at least relative to these kinds of circumstances, um, vitiated or overruled or um, whatever, choose your adjective, the 2000 amendment. To the made it irrelevant. I mean, pick, pick your pick your adjective, but but what you're really saying is that it supersedes and it controls here and we ignore subdivision 11. I don't think you do ignore subdivision 11 if it becomes relevant. It does, nothing in 176061, not in subdivision 11 or any of the other provisions say anything about not applying this statute, 60402. It just doesn't. So subdivision 11 could apply in a different case, just not here when you're under 50%. Correct. You can still have Lambert, if my client was at fault, then more than the employer, there would be circumstances under which you would have to do the, the we'd find Lamberts and there could be con uh, could be contribution claims, there could be uh, the subrogation claim that the employer has the right to, it could be pushed through Johnson, which is just a mechanism for enforcing or, or uh, doling out the money. But absolutely, it can still apply, just not in circumstances such as these, where you have an employer who's 75% at fault, and you have a third-party tortfeasor, my client, the uh, Rambler Trucking. Okay, so um, I think what, what is also important to remember is if you go to uh, the, the idea that Staub talked about, about the injury being occurring or the uh, several liability occurring at the time of the injury. Even, I, I just want to even again point out that there was a tort here. 
There was a tort by the workers' compensation carrier. A jury found them to be negligent. They checked that box on the special verdict form. They attributed 75% of the fault to Wells Concrete. So there was a tort here. All that happens is because it is a different type of action that they can't contribute, they can't recover from that. And that's exactly, the plaintiff complains that that's not fair. Uh, the plaintiff points out that they, uh, they feel that this reallocation of money is not fair to them, and that's a big part of their uh, argument about fairness. They say a reduction in their net benefits is not fair because it's not replaceable in workers' comp. Well, that's exactly how it's supposed to work in workers' comp. That is what's supposed to happen in workers' comp. You are getting compensated in your workers' compensation action, which is over here. You have made the grand bargain. You have acquired your, by legislative design, you have acquired your wage loss and your um, benefits, your, uh, and your uh, medical benefits. So to say that you are undercompensated, that's an, a legislation, legislative issue you can take up with the legislature, but that's how work comp works. You are not 100% compensated. But the flip side of that for us is that we have paid, and particularly in this case, we have been asked to pay almost $273,000 in, in um, general damages. None of that should go to the plaintiff, except for that portion, which I am at fault for. And I think $235,000 of general damages, to which Mr. Fish is not entitled under the Workers' Compensation Act. I am having to pay that under the court's ruling. And it is, it, it, the fairness issue is more than just fairness to one person. We all look at it through the prism of who we are representing. But for me, I think that the issue becomes we are being treated differently and every Mr. Fish is being treated differently. And in a way, Mr. Fish is being treated in a much more favorable way because he had the, no one is fortunate for being injured, but he was fortunately injured at work. And he can make a claim against any, any time an employee gets injured, even if they think the person is 5% at fault, 10% at fault, as long as they're not more at fault against them, they can bring a lawsuit and pursue that third-party tortfeasor, and they will pay all the damages if you follow how the Court of Appeals ruled in this case. And it, it, when you have such a minimal amount of liability, it's, it, it staggers the mind to think how this is going to play out. In my practice, in particular, I have a case right now, a very unfortunate case, where a young lady was uh, working for a contractor, and she, had, uh, she was scalped by a machine that my client, who is a European company, man, uh, designed. All the evidence is that it was the fault of her employer and of another company where she was doing this cleaning. They took off all the guards. They never told them about the warnings. They told them to run the machine, even though everybody... Counsel, if I could interrupt you, is this an active case that you're describing? Generally, yes, yeah. We probably shouldn't oh, hear about cases okay. that, Sorry, that are Honor, active. Sorry, Your Honor. I guess I'm just trying to say that in a situation like where you have a minimally, very minimally at fault defendant. It's going to come up over and over again. And I think that we don't have to worry. Lambertson isn't eviscerated. Lambertson can continue in circumstances where comparative fault, where uh, e even with the application of comparative fault, it, it looks as though we are going to uh, uh, pay more than our fair share. That's what Lambertson is about. Um, let me see. Um, I think... That's about it for right now. I think I'll, I could I just have to... ask a question. So, oh, with the 2003 Act, so there, so Lambertson and its kind of progeny are are out there. That's what the law was before 2003. Those rules. So, do we have to find something in the in, in the language of subdivision of what are the comparative fault statute? I'm sorry, 604.02 that shows an intent to change that common law in order for you to win. And if so, what, what what is that evidence? Well, I know that was an issue below, and I know that that was something that the Court of Appeals was looking at. But the issue isn't whether or not Lamberson isn't isn't overruled. So, 2003 amendment to the uh, Comparative Fault Act 
uh, isn't trying to overrule Lambertson. It's trying to act in tandem, it just acts in tandem with it in circumstances where you apply comparative fault. The case you may be thinking of, uh, the only time it has actually come up directly is the Decker case, Decker v. Brunkow, and they said in an earlier iteration, which was comparable, it was the 15 by four, I think, uh, version, they said, well, we're not gonna apply that, it doesn't apply, but they used the same reasoning that we've been talking about here. Court of Appeals decision, I believe, Yes, right? it was a Court of Appeals decision, and they used the same theory that because they didn't have common liability, we cannot apply this comparative fault statute. And I think that, I am pretty sure that Stab says it can apply, and I know that Lambertson straight up just invented it, just gave comparative fault, just said there's comparative fault. So with that, I, I am going to reserve my time, so I think I'll step down and allow counsel to go unless anyone else has another question for me. Okay, thank you, counsel. You have eight minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Wilson. Good morning, and uh, may it please the court. <clears throat> I'm Scott Wilson, and seated on my right is Michael Krug. Uh, together we represent respondent uh, Frederick Fish. Uh, I'm gonna open with the same assertion uh, that I made to Judges Bjorkman, Werke, and Klopaki uh, in the Court of Appeals proceedings uh, below. My opponents have offered you a complicated cocktail of unintended consequences. Uh, and I hope you forgive me for being cute. I'm, I'm a little cute. I'm, I'm, I'm here to ask you not to take a drink. Uh, and I have uh, five grounded, compelling reasons for making that request of you. Each one of them are dispositive of this appeal. Uh, the first is that the courts of this state, including this court, have repeatedly stated that any change to Lambert's and apportionment is for the legislature to make. Uh, the only pertinent change that the legislature has made to this point is to codify Lambertson contribution through the addition of subdivision 11 <coughs> of section 176.061 in 2000. Second, as the Court of Appeals observed, several liability is a predicate. Two or more persons being severally liable together is a predicate for section 604.02 apportionment. Uh, and there can be no several liability between a third-party tortfeasor liable in tort and an employer who is immune to tort liability. Third, what Ramler and the MDLA want you to do results in an irrational double compensation of third-party tortfeasors. That, by the way, is our unfairness argument. Our unfairness argument does not go to compensation of the employee. It goes to unjust enrichment in the third-party tortfeasor. Well, the problem with that argument, counsel, is fairness is in the eyes of the beholder. And uh, if you do the math here, um, Ramler, it seems to me, has a pretty good argument, independent of whether uh, your client might think he's being uh, treated unfairly, they wind up paying a higher percentage than the fault would otherwise indicate. Uh, that is that is correct. What happens in Lambertson apportionment, uh, and by the way, I, I want to clarify this too, this is not new. There's an argument being made that something new is happening to third-party tortfeasors. This is based on 40 years of settled precedent codified 19 years ago. But to your point, uh, Justice, uh, what has always happened under Lambertson apportionment is a full tort recovery for the plaintiff as there was at common law. That's what's occurring. Uh, the irrational result that's occurring here, which is in a sense unfair, is that there is a double compensation. Now, it's gonna vary from case to case, but it is inevitable. And it's inevitable, you can see it mechanically. Uh, Lambertson contribution and apportionment under 60402 are both mechanisms for adjustment of fault. If you apply those mechanisms simultaneously in any case to adjust the same fault, you will double compensate the party who is benefiting from that apportionment. Now, what happens here, uh, you know, Ramley says, well, look at us, we paid $95,000 uh, to uh, to the uh, employer. We're not being compensated. 
That's simply not true. A reverse neg settlement or a wave and walk under the statute. And by the way, if, if the district court's decision becomes law, you're going to see one of those two things happen in every case going forward. Uh, either the reverse neg settlement or the wave and walk compensate the uh, third party uh, defendant's valuable right of contribution. And they compensate it by relieving the third party defendant of the employer's valuable right of subrogation. Now I haven't done the math, but in this case, the employer's uh, right of subrogation was probably worth close to $200,000, maybe $180,000. That went away in the reverse neg settlement. And that compensated to the tune of if we assume my $180,000, what is that then? To the tune of $85,000, they were compensated for their right of contribution. They were also, this isn't just about math, they were also compensated in another way. They purchased the empty chair. And there's nothing wrong with that, they have a right to do that. But they purchased an empty chair that would have been occupied by the employer. And into that empty chair, they then did what a good advocate would do, they heaped comparative fault and they got a 75% apportionment. But then, having been already compensated for the employer's fault through the contribution, in whatever amount they negotiated, or if it was a wave and walk, in whatever amount the value of the employer's subrogation claim was, then the district court turned around, ignored the compensation under Lambertson, uh, and apportioned out the same fault under 60402. That is an absurd result. And uh, this court, uh, where it is not constrained by the express terms of a statute, presumes that the legislature does not intend absurd results. That is the third reason that you can't do what Ramler and the MDLA are asking you to do. Uh, the fourth reason uh, is as, I think perhaps it was you, Justice Anderson, uh, 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 as I think you pointed out, uh, application of Section 60402 to third-party cases violates multiple canons of construction. Uh, the one I go to first is not the one that I think you went to. Uh, it's, uh, it, for me, it's chiefly in that Section 176061 sub 11 is a controlling special provision that governs apportionment in third-party cases. Well, 60402 is a general uh, apportionment uh, provision that uh, later enacted that does not control unless there is a manifest, a manifest intent by the legislature that it control over the earlier special provision, and that is simply not here. Uh, and then fifth, and this is the only uh, point that goes specifically to this case, uh, the plain terms of the reverse neg settlement between Ramler and auto owners, the workers' compensation payor, expressly states that it, quote, excludes and does not in any way affect the rights or claims of Frederick Fish. And yet, Ramler, throughout these proceedings, uh, has sought to use the existence of that settlement to take away 75% of his claim. Whether that's right or wrong, it violates the express terms of the agreement. Uh, and the settlement, by the way, is right at the heart of their approach. Uh, something I want to actually emphasize. Uh, the theory, the complicated theory that Ramler and the MDLA are offering you is that because there is a reverse neg, this is also what the district court and the court in Gaudreau said, because there is a reverse, a reverse neg settlement, uh, the Lambertson contribution rights somehow disappears from the case. And that's what makes it possible to, uh, under the theory, to apply 60402. That is a fallacy. That's simply not true. Uh, the contribution right has been compensated. And if you look, civil cases are about compensation. Uh, if you look at the flow of compensation, it hasn't disappeared at all. It's simply been compensated at this point and it no longer needs to be compensated uh, after that. What do we do about the language in Staub, uh, which uh, suggests uh, an apportionment uh, based on fault? Um, and does that in any way impact your argument here? Staub says what it says, um, and I, my response, Justice, is that it simply does not apply uh, to uh, third-party workers' compensation cases where Lambertson, uh, where Lambertson does apply. Uh, Staub uh, was uh, specifically discussing 60402 sub 1. Uh, it was addressing uh, uh, 
the new world that we've been in since 2003, where for tort defendants, several liability is the uh, default, uh, for tort defendants in non-work non uh, place injuries, several liability is the, is the default status. Uh, uh, and it never went beyond that. So it does not apply here. Uh, what it did do is it, uh, what, the, what the court did in Staub one is it defined uh, several liability at some length. Uh, and we quoted that passage in full at page 43 of our brief. Uh, here is essentially uh, what the court said about several liability. Just, I'm going to kind of boil it down a little bit. It said that several liability is first a component of joint and several liability. Uh, secondly, it arises, quote, when multiple tortfeasors commit an act that causes a single individual injury to a plaintiff. Uh, such that, quote, the plaintiff may bring a separate action against one defendant without joining the other liable parties. And it results in liability, as I think you pointed out, Justice Lillehug, it results in liability for an equitable share of the award on the part of the severally liable party. Well, that definition cannot apply to a statutorily immune employer for, um, for multiple reasons. First of all, it assumes that each of a group of severally liable defendants could be sued by the plaintiff in the same action. Uh, several liability conceptually, I think, has a kind of a fluidity uh, that's based on the choice of the plaintiff. You can sue this one, you can sue that one. Well, if you've got a statutorily immune uh, employer in the mix, you can't sue that one. You can't sue the employer. Opposing counsel, I think, will tell us that uh, that may be true, but in Lambertson, the Supreme Court, us, um, sort of blew right by that and said we're going to have this this uh, formula for dealing with that issue. It suggests maybe that common liability, so to speak, is not a factor. How do you respond to that? Well, it, it, I, I listened carefully to the argument that my opponent made to you about Lambertson, and there's validity to it. You know, I saw it when I read Lambertson. Lambertson does minimize the importance of, uh, of common liability. Uh, the the problem you have here, both with respect to the narrow focus of your question and the case overall, is a problem of statute. Uh, the 60402 calls for several liability. It's an absolute predicate for application of 60402. Uh, and several liability is a form of common liability. So whatever this court, due respect, uh, to the court, whatever the, however the court chooses to view the importance of common liability or where it should apply or should not apply, uh, if you want to apply 60402, you have to have it. Uh, and, uh, and you simply don't. And, and what you have instead is a statute, uh, 176.061 uh, subdivision 11, that, uh, that codifies Lambertson contribution. And as I said earlier, if Lambertson contribution is the law, then it's going to result in what you see here. It's going to be the uh, Ramler was permitted to take advantage of its Lambertson right of contribution. As the district court expressly acknowledged, the district court said, under Lambertson in section 176.061 sub 11, Ramler sued the employer for contribution. So they were permitted to do that. They were then permitted to settle that right. And then all of that was ignored uh, when the same fault was compensated again under 60402. That just can't. Does your argument turn on the existence of the 2000 amendment, the subdivision 11? Like if that hadn't been passed, would your argument be different? My argument would be largely the same because of uh, the express language of 60402 uh, and because of the existence of Lambertson at common law. Uh, well, that's, my, that that's what my question is going for. So it existed at common law, these rules that was codified. Right. So does the act of codification by the legislature, is that, how important is that to your argument versus, you know? I'll be truthful. As an advocate, I'm glad it's there. I think it strengthens my argument tremendously. Uh, but, uh, but if it was absent, uh, I still don't think that you could apply 60402. Uh, to uh, because Lambertson and its progeny existed in any event. That's the smaller part of the argument. That this hypothetical argument we'd be having in a world where the 2000 Amendment hadn't occurred. Uh, the smaller part of the argument would be the existence of Lambertson and the failure of 60402 sub 1 to refer to it. But uh, the key 
it would I, I be guess the absence maybe, of predicate. Maybe I should be clear. So one of the arguments here is Lambertson is, is put in place against the common law background where everybody's liable for everything, essentially. And the court came in and said, well, that's not fair. It's not fair to the third-party tortfeasors, so we're going to give them a right, basically, of, to collect or to reduce their award by the amount that the employer paid out in, the, in workers' comp. And so, and then in 2003, that, I mean, it had changed before, obviously, but in 2003, that original common law background rule was changed again. And so, aren't all the arguments that you're making the same arguments that could have been made when Lambertson was passed? I mean, it, it seems like they're... You they, mean when... when... When Lambertson was decided, it seems like, had you been the advocate for Mr. Fish, but instead... Mr. Lambertson, I don't know who the plaintiff was, I'm sorry. Uh, if you had been the employee's lawyer at that time, wouldn't you be making exactly the same arguments to this court, in, to the Lambertson court that you're making today, and the Lambertson court decided against you? So in 1977, at the time of Lambertson, um, I guess what I'm not tracking, and I don't mean to be obtuse, what I'm not tracking is, is how the Lambertson court decided against me. I mean, if you're the, basically the Lambertson, under, as I understand it, maybe I got this wrong, the third party tortfeasor there had to pay the employee the whole amount, ignoring the fact that he also got compensation from the workers' compensation right. car the carrier. And what this court said is, no, that doesn't seem fair. We're gonna reduce the amount that the third party uh, tortfeasor has to pay because they can get some of it back from the employer, right? Right. That's kind of the essence of it. So the employee in pre, I mean, the other result that could happen in Lambertson is the employee would have gotten the workers' comp plus 100% of the damages. And we said that's not okay. Uh, Which is kind of in some parallel to what you're arguing today. Uh, here's my response. I, I see Lambertson differently than, than how, you, uh, how you described it. I think the employee uh, walking in uh, to uh, to Lambertson in 1977 uh, was entitled to their workers' compensation benefits and they were entitled to a full recovery pre-Lambertson uh, from the third-party tortfeasor uh, subject to the employer's right of subrogation. If we just look at the employee plaintiff's interests in 1977 after Lambertson, that had not changed. The employee was still entitled to their uh, their full recovery from the third-party tortfeasor and still subject to the employer's right of, of excuse me of subrogation. So Lambertson was resolving whether a, a third-party tortfeasor had a claim over against the employer, not whether the third-party tortfeasor um, had. At the end of the day, the plaintiff gets less; the employee gets less. Yeah, the, the employee's recovery didn't change. It was a fight between the third-party tortfeasor and the employer. So if Lambertson wouldn't have been decided, the employee would have had to pay the employer back the money that they got in workers' comp? Well, the, the, that's something that's never changed. It, sometimes the, 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 tell me what the answer is, and then tell me why it hasn't changed. Okay, I will. Uh, the, the, answer, uh, the answer is uh, that uh, before and after Lambertson, the employee was subject to the employer's right of subrogation and had to pay the employer back out of the third-party tortfeasor's recovery. Sorry about my serpentine approach there. Um, so I'm actually gonna take a look here and see what I have not touched on, absent any question from the court. Well, we can look briefly um, at the canons of construction uh, before I sit down. We talked about controlling special provisions. Uh, uh, there is also the fact that Lambertson is a common law rule, and as this court said in Stop 1, you can't uh, deem those statutorily abrogated absent a clear indication of legislative intent. Uh, there's also the fact that the 2003 amendment to 60402 passed in a legal environment that included Lambertson apportionment, and it's silent uh, concerning it. 
uh, uh, and in stop one, this court said that uh, specifically 60402 subdivision one must be examined in the light of existing common law rules. Also, there's section 645.28, which says that the laws enforced at the time of an adoption of any revision or code are not repealed uh, by the revision or code unless expressly repealed uh, therein. Uh, and then lastly, just want to touch on a few things that came up during my opponent's uh, argument. Uh, Ms. Benson made the assertion that the same offsets that she's entitled to now uh, in a third uh, party case would be available to her in a non-third party case. Uh, and that's actually not true. What's specific to the third party case is the Lambertson right of contribution. That's there uh, in the third party case. It's not there in a non-third party case. That's the problem. That's the problem of dual compensation that I was talking about. Um, and that actually covers it. Uh, I will yield the rest of my time. We do. Can I just ask one, so one more practice? So in this case, Mr. Is Mr. Fish actually getting more money than he was injured less than 5% because of the reverse neg settlement? So like just in terms of pure practical dollars going to Mr. Mr. Fish, you know, so that there must've been some like total loss here, right? Right. And then it was reduced by 5% because of his contribution. So whatever that 95% is, is he getting more money as a result of this than that than in dollar amount, but only as a result, I think this goes to your double recovery thing because of the settlement on the contribution. He's, the, the total amount of compensation uh, after removal of, of offsets we don't contest, uh, like duplicative workers' compensation benefits, and 5% comparative fault. I don't have the number right in front of me. It was somewhere around $290,000. So, but when you say duplicative workers' compensation benefits, he got those benefits, though, in this case? That's, that's correct. That's what? what I'm asking. So, if, say, say the total loss is $100,000 here. That's what his injury was. So, it's $95,000. And he got paid, you know, $40,000 of workers' compensation benefits. And now he's getting paid kind of... the. Is he getting more than $95,000 just in raw terms if you combine the workers' compensation benefits and the third-party payment that's required if it's not limited to 20% because of the, but it's because of the nature and the action of the reverse neg settlement, I think is the reason, but is he, in raw dollars, is he getting more money? Here's, I don't, I think the answer is no. Uh, here, what I'm going to do is, is respond with the mechanics of uh, uh, 061 sub 11, the last sentence of it, uh, which is also the way the law operated prior to, uh, to the 2000 uh, amendment. Uh, if there's, a, it was just under a case. Uh, if there is a reverse neg settlement, the subrogation claim goes away. So the employee doesn't have to account for the worker's compensation in subrogation to the employer. As a result, the district court is then required to deduct all items of damages that are the same or similar to workers' compensation benefits that are paid or payable. Uh, so it comes out the same. Uh, where there is not a reverse neg settlement, the employee accounts for the workers' compensation benefits in subro. Where there is a reverse neg or a wave and walk, uh, the employee uh, accounts for it through offset by the district court post-verdict. Does that answer your question? Council, I, I want to maybe come at it a little differently because now I thought I understood, but now I'm not sure. <laughs> and, and part of it's because of what you said earlier, which was that um, Rambler did, was compensated for its right of contribution from the employer. Yes. I get that. But then you said, and that was because of the reverse neg, right? Yes. But then you said that the district court then apportioned out that same fault under 60402. That's correct. That's absolutely what occurred. So just, just sort of, if you can tease that out, why is that wrong, I guess is what I'm, because your answer to Justice Thiessen's question was ultimately no, <laughs> but I'm trying to figure out what is wrong with that. 
What's wrong with that is that it's an unjust enrichment. First of all, so it's that's what I'm getting. So, so I guess that goes to Justice Teeson's question. So, is the um, is Mr. Fish? What is he actually getting? Because it seems like he's getting the, a double recovery, and maybe that's the way it's supposed to well, work. Under the let's use some numbers that aren't exactly accurate because I don't have them okay. in front of me. Uh, under the district court decision, he's getting around fifty-five thousand dollars plus interest, uh, and and that represents ultimately at the end of the day, after all the offsets and and the reduction uh, to Ramler's twenty percent. Uh, of fault, that's what the judgment comes down to. Uh, and that's under 60402. Under Lambertson, uh, where he has a right of full recovery from the third-party tortfeasor, then he would be getting uh, somewhere between two hundred dollars and $300,000. So that's the state of his recovery. Uh, the, the problem you have, among multiple other problems with application of 60402, uh, is that Apportionment under 60402 here, where the only other party is the employer, apportions the employer's fault out. The Lambertson right of contribution. Say that again. Apportions what? Apportions the employer's fault out. Okay. Takes it away. Right. Uh, Lambertson contribution serves the same function. Uh, so if uh, the third party tortfeasor, Ramler here, uh, is compensated through Lambertson contribution for that employer fault, it cannot, in logic, then be compensated for it again through 60402 apportionment. Uh, that is uh, an unjust enrichment of the third party tortfeasor. It is also an irrational result that the court presumes does not occur. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Benson, you have eight minutes for rebuttal. Uh, I know, Counsel, you're anxious to get to uh, respond to Mr. Wilson's argument, and we're looking forward to that. But I, I had one preliminary question, and that is, um, and I meant to ask this when you were up here before, what do we do with the language in Lambertson that says, um, if there's going to be any change on this, this uh, Lambertson kind of contribution, we leave it to the legislature to do that? Now, obviously, that's our court saying that. <clears throat> we can say something different. But what are we supposed to do with that language? That language isn't implicated. Lambertson, in this case, is not implicated. Lambertson is exclusively deals with the contribution between a third-party tortfeasor and the employer. It doesn't refer to 60402, subdivision 1. Lambertson doesn't even address that. 60401 talks about comparative fault when allocating fault after a jury verdict. Lambertson exclusively deals with contribution from the employer when the third-party tortfeasor has been, uh, has been paid, has paid more than its fair share. Well, counsel, how do you deal with the follow-up case to Lambertson, which is Johnson versus Rasky Building Systems? That, ba that basically says that the, the third-party tortfeasor, assuming it has more in, degree of fault than the plaintiff, pays the entire verdict. That's exactly. That's a crazy result. And I think that, again, it relies on the, I think, Miss Johnson versus Rasky was a crazy result? Well, I think that we pay everything. I mean, that's what we've been going with. We pay everything. If we have like 1% of fault, we pay everything. And I think that that's why we need to look at what Lambertson was actually saying. Lambertson was actually saying that comparative fault doesn't apply, or not comparative, common liability is not really relevant. So you can apportion fault. You can, under 60402, you can decide that people are severally liable. I don't liable. think Lambertson said common liability is irrelevant. In fact, it said there is no common liability to the employee in tort, referring to the employer. And then it said, nevertheless, we're going to create a common law right of contribution. They said somewhat more than that, Your Honor. I, I don't mean to disagree with you, but they said that they have a com they may not have a common liability to the employee in tort. 
they have a common law, both the employer and the third party are nonetheless liable to the employee. You don't have to be liable in tort, you can be liable separately, and I think I brought that up in my brief, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. In the Snyder case, there's different kinds of liability. In Snyder, Jones, uh, I'm sorry, Jones v. Fisher, Dram Shop case, they found uh, the Dram Shop, which is a statutory liability, and the uh, other defendant, co-defendant, was a tortfeasor, a negligent tortfeasor. Even though they they arise, their liability arises out of disparate sources. The court found that they could find a common liability. There's Same not a there's not a grand bargain in dram shop, though, is there? No, there isn't. There isn't. But the issue, and I think counsel has pointed this out in his brief, and I don't know if he mentioned it. I'm sorry. Uh, he argued that they can't pursue their employer, but but they can. They And the court, actually, the appellate court used 176.031 to say, oh, well, they can't, they don't have a claim. They don't have an action. But under 176.021, they do have the action that the legislature told them they could have. That is an action against their employer in the workers' compensation system. So you're right. Those other cases are, are not on specifically on point, but I was trying to make the argument that I think they are instructive that we don't always have to come to the same conclusion from the same system. Counsel, and so Hendrickson said there's no common liability between an employer and a third-party tortfeasor. When did that change? What was the moment that that changed, if at all? Hendrickson was overruled, Your Honor. The, the the holding of Hendrickson, which is that there couldn't be contribution, was Hendrickson was overruled. But that fundamental point that there is no common liability between an employer and a third-party tortfeasor, when was that overruled? I think it was overruled by the action of the court in Lambertson. I think when they said, I, I don't need common liability for me to make, to fashion an equitable remedy that I want to make. They said, you don't have to be commonly liable in tort. And that's the actual language. You don't have to be commonly liable in tort. You, are, you have a common liability to that person. It's hearkening back to Staub at the time that the injury occurred, who's involved here? Who's responsible here? That's, that's what it comes to. And I, I do want to point out um, a couple things that council mentioned. One was that uh, we're trying to ask for a change in Lambertson and that the legislature has to, and, and many of the cases have said this, you have that, it, that it has to come from the legislature. There's not a change to Lambertson. It just doesn't apply if you allow the two systems that have come together, merge together, and take portions from both. And we already are taking portions from both. We're already taking the fact that the employer has limited liability in this civil lawsuit. We're taking in from the right side, from the liability side, they've already been using comparative fault. They have been using comparative fault willy-nilly without a word of it being in 176.061. And in their brief, the, uh, Mr. Fish said, well, we, it's not really an action, and, they, and the court said that, but it is an action. They used a statute, um, let me see if I can find that statute. Uh, oh, 64505, they said, well, it has to be an action. And they used the definition of action, by the way, that applies to civil cases. Uh, they didn't use the statute that applies to work comp, which is 6.151, which talks about the statute of limitations. And it says that it requires you have to bring your action or proceeding. An action can be a work comp case. It is a court proceeding. The workers' compensation court has its own court. It has, I think, 20 judges. It has a court of appeals. I think they are in this building. They are called justices. And I believe that it is a judicial proceeding. So it is an action within the definition of 645.05. Actually, they're not called justices, but the rest not of it was right. I would not know that, Your Honor. But um, I think what I, I think it's also important that we're not asking for a change. And the plaintiff has also argued that we are, that, the, that they are immunity, they have immunity. So because the employer has immunity, this can't, none of these other things apply. It isn't immunity. Immunity means some something so that is we, a bar. Their argument, their argument is that, that uh, it's not common liability because um, they are immune from a direct action by the employee and 
that seems to be that that's statutorily correct. It is statutorily correct that they are uh, from direct action by the employee, but they can pursue under Section 176.021. They can commence a proceeding against their employer for their benefits if they disagree with the benefits that they're getting. There is an action for them. They do, they inure the benefits, inure to them, but the whole compensation system isn't because everybody's getting along and agreeing that people should be paid, right? So the, another thing he said was that um, 60402 doesn't apply. 176 is completely, 061 is silent on 60402. Doesn't say anything about it. Doesn't say anything about that. Comparative fault is different than the contribution in Lambertson. We're not asking for Lambertson contribution. I'm done, I guess. So unless anybody has any questions, I would ask that the court reverse and remand for further action by the trial court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to all counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.